Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. What a first week. Uh, my uh, first thank you goes out to Andy Bashir for making it a very interesting week for us here <laughs> to have to make some last-minute decisions. Thank you all who came and wore your mask and, and were just a part of this. We're very thankful for it. We feel like it was a, a small step to take to seek to try to honor our governing authorities and a small step to hopefully keep us coming to church every week and not having six weeks off <laughs> again. We really don't want to do that. So, but I found myself this week praying a prayer that's commonly attributed to St. Patrick, who was a, a missionary to Ireland. We celebrate him in March, and here's what he prayed. He prayed, Christ be with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, and Christ on my left, Christ where I lie down, and Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, and Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, and Christ in the ear that hears me. This prayer, I think, captures the central message of what we're going to begin is a several-week study of the book of Colossians. And Colossians is all about teaching us that we've been created and redeemed by Christ, that Christ lives in us, and we're in Christ, and that by Holy Spirit power we've been raised with Christ, and we, and we dwell with Him now, as Ephesians says, in the heavenly places. In the coming weeks, we'll be gazing into this book's incredible message, and that's that Christ is all. And that's what we want to display to the world, right, in all that we do and say. We want people to walk away from our life and to, and to see, forget about us, and to remember our Savior. And so find the book of Colossians, and we'll begin in chapter 1 this morning, and we'll read from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 1, verse 8. Book of Colossians, feel free if you've got a Bible, you can use that. If you've got an app, whatever you use, we'll also have some stuff on the screen as well. And it's also in your bulletin that you received when you walked in. Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, de- our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of God. Colossians 1 reminds us of something that I think is clear from cover to cover in the Bible, and that is that we were made to multiply. 
The Bible opens with God creating all things, and he says each thing is going to produce after its own kind. And you and I are no different. He even placed Adam and Eve there in the garden and told them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Replicate yourself and spread these copies of yourself throughout the world. And God still desires his people to replicate ourselves and to fill the earth. Verse 5 actually told us that. Look what verse 5 says of Colossians 1. Of this, we'll look at what this entails a little bit later. You heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. It is fruitful and multiplying throughout the world. We replicate and multiply ourselves through the gospel as we speak the good news to other people. What is this gospel? The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do. His sinless life, his death on the cross in our place, and his resurrection from the dead to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life by Faith. God intended for his good news, his gospel, to permeate every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation, every color, every culture, and every kind of person on this earth. The gospel is meant to bear fruit and multiply. But how exactly? Does the gospel bear fruit and multiply? This is the question. You can go find millions and millions of books out there all about church growth. And really the question they're seeking to answer is, how does the gospel help us to grow? How does the gospel bear fruit and multiply in the world? How is God at work in the world? And we often, I think, miss this as Christians because we oversimplify things a little too much. But I would say, if I could give in in two broad headings, God is at work in his gospel in two primary ways simultaneously at the same time. And as Christians, we recognize these two journeys in our walk of faith. First, that God's gospel is at work in the world. It is extending out to people and nations, whether here in Cades or across the globe. It is spreading out. God is at work across the world and seeing his gospel go forth. But there's also the gospel's work in us. The way the gospel internally works in our hearts to make us more like Jesus and less like the world. If I could put it another way, it's that the gospel spreads the message going out, and the gospel goes into our depths when it changes us and the word conforms us more to his image. And we see both of these works of God, both of these journeys on display in our passage this morning. Both the external journey of the gospel in the world and its internal journey in our hearts. And he shows us in this passage two ways the gospel bears fruit. First, in us, and second. In the world. So, first, we should notice the gospel's fruit in God's people. The gospel's fruit in God's people. And the first fruit we see of this is the fruit of a new identity. A new identity. Notice how he begins chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy are 
brother. Paul gives a pretty standard greeting at the start of this letter, doesn't he? And Paul always put his, his greeting or his signature there at the beginning rather than at the end where we might normally put it if we were writing a letter. And he had Timothy, his protege, with him, and he was writing to the people there in Colossae about 62 A.D., if you're kind of a history person, about 62 A.D., about 30 or so years after the ministry of Jesus. And he was writing from a Roman jail cell. And he wrote, about the time he wrote Colossians, he also wrote Philippians and Ephesians. But unlike those letters, he was writing to a group of people he had never met. Or maybe he'd met some of them in passing, but he didn't really know them super well. And this letter he was meant to be read aloud among the Colossians, and chapter 4 tells us that it was also to be read among the nearby Laodicean Christians who were you know, a ways down the road from them. And notice how he continues, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He wants to remind us of our new identity in Christ, and he begins by telling us that in Christ we are saints. In Christ we are saints. So often when we think of saints, we think of old dead guys, we think of folks that they make statues about, and yet, friends, we got saints all over this church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are according to the Bible, a saint. And to be a saint is simply to be set apart for God, to be holy, to be one of God's people, to be pulled out of the world. Notice how in verse 2 he parallels saint and faithful brother or faithful sister. And he puts those side by side. All who are followers of Christ are set apart, holy, God's own people, distinct and different and set apart from the world. But has this made a difference for us? See, many of us don't live as who we are. Many of us as Christians, even though we've been set apart, we still very much live and look just like everyone else in the world does. And brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. We've been given a new identity, but do we live like it? God has changed us. But do we live as if he's really done that change in us? In Christ, we are saints. But he also says, in Christ, we are sons and daughters. We are children of God. Did you notice that in verse 2? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. To see the shared hour there in verse 2, and when he refers to us as brothers and sisters, that there's a sort of family that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ that's, that's greater and, and even in a more supernatural way unites us, that's even beyond our own families. We are God's children, sons and daughters of God. And there's a common sort of myth you'll hear out there, a lot of, you'll hear a lot of politicians say, you'll hear a lot of other people, where they want to say, well, all of us are children of God. And while everyone is a creation of God, an image bearer of God, loved by God as their creation, the Bible says we're children based on adoption, not by default. Look at John chapter 1, I've got this up on the screen, John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, notice what we see here. 
But to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And see, everything we are, we are by grace. And his opening greeting is a blessing for grace and peace, all of which come from God. We can't earn it. We can't get it by, by rituals like baptism or even by, you know, we just check off enough church attendance and then I'm good, then I'm a, then I'm a child of God. We, we can't be moral enough. We can't buy it with our money or our talents. This may sound like incredibly bad news, but none of us can earn our way as being God's children. The good news and the scandalous part of it all is that it's all by grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says as much. You may know these verses if you've grown up in church, but it's always good to have this reminder. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. He reminds us that the gospel gives us a new identity as saints and sons by grace, by the free gift of God, by unearned, unmerited kindness of God. The gospel bears fruit by giving us a new identity. But we also see the gospel bears fruit in us by producing new activity. New activity, that this gospel of Jesus' sinless life, his death in our place, and his resurrection from the dead produces something in us. It's not just a message that's outside of us, it's a message God uses to transform us from the inside out. It changes our hearts and moves its way out of our hearts into our hands and our feet into the way we live our life. And this text here in Colossians 1 gives us three new activities that the gospel produces in us. That first, the gospel produces faith in Christ. Notice how he begins... In verse 3, he moves out of his greeting, and he says, I always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul overflows in thankfulness for the work of the gospel in these people. And notice, he's regularly been praying for folks he never met. And he expresses thanksgiving for their faith in Christ. First, there's a couple things to notice here. And I think first and foremost is that he tells us that faith has an object. In other words, the Christian faith isn't just a sort of blind hopefulness or this sort of sentimental sort of optimism. Christian faith is trust in a person. It's not the sort of faith that you have of something that you could never really see. It's a sort of faith you have in a person you know, your spouse, your family. You have faith in them, and in a similar way, we have faith in Jesus. If I could give an imperfect illustration, Christian faith is much like the chair that you came and sat in when you came in here. I didn't see anybody when they came in and sat in that chair who wanted to engage in a philosophical debate about whether the chair existed or not. I didn't see anybody want to break down the science of how the chair got there. I didn't see anybody look under it and check 
to see all the details about it. The wall of that isn't necessarily bad to do. You walked in here today and you sat down. And it wasn't until you sat down in that chair that you exercised trusting faith, true faith in the chair. And so, friends, in much the same way, when we place our faith in Jesus, it is like setting our sins upon him. It's placing our trust in him. It's setting down. It's not just checking off the right beliefs. It's actually saying, I trust you. You are my only hope. You're the one who can take my sins and forgive them. And friends, have we sat down by faith in the work that Jesus has done For us, Paul rejoices not just in their initial faith, this is the second thing we'd see here, but also in their ongoing faith. See, so many people seem to think that Christian faith is just a one time, I check the card, and who really cares about the rest of my life? Just give a little nod to the big man upstairs, and then I'll just go on doing whatever I want. But the Christian faith is not a one-time nod to Jesus, but a lifetime of placing our trust in the sufficient and finished work of Jesus on our behalf. The gospel produces in us faith, and not just a sort of general faith, but faith and trust in a person, in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Second. The gospel produces love for the saints. Notice the rest of verse 4. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. He thanks God for their love for one another. And he could have said this in a lot of different ways, but he isn't just talking about... See, so many of us think affect, like love is just affection. Like, I have to just get a warm, fuzzy feeling or I don't love you. And those of us who've been around a long time know that just isn't quite how that works, right? And it isn't the sort of even love that you have for a friendship because love doesn't even necessarily mean you have to like them. But friends, he gives us a certain kind of love that can only be embodied in Jesus himself. And Paul tells us elsewhere what this love looks like. If you've ever been to a Christian wedding in your life, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13 read at the wedding. And while, yes, that text should be how husbands and wives love each other, the actual context of 1 Corinthians 13 is how you should love the people in the chairs down from you, how this side of the room should love this side of the room, and everybody here should love one another in the way 1 Corinthians 13 does, not just spouses, but everybody. Consider this, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're to be patient and kind, yes, with our spouses, but also with our brothers and sisters, even ones who might vote differently than we do. Christian love, especially in a day of division and quarreling, isn't marked by arrogance, envy, or boasting, but rather rejoicing in truth, bearing with one another. I love one of my favorite commands, and it's over in the book of Ephesians, is where Paul says, put up with one another. 
Praise God. (laughs) He says, people are going to get on your nerves even in the church. Shocking, right? And he says, you're just going to have to put up with them. Put up with them and love them. Anyway, because let me tell you, friends, Jesus has put up with a whole lot more in you than you have to in the person down the seat from you. Friend, would we say that our Facebook interactions have been measured by patience and kindness? When we say the way we interact with one another has been marked by by arrogance or envy or boasting, because he says that's not how you're supposed to love. Do we rejoice in truth and how we communicate to one another? And that also means maybe being careful not to just share everything you might see. Friends, are we loving one another, even on Facebook, (laughs) in the way that God calls us to? Gospel fruit produces Christian love, and it demands we live this way in all areas of life. And third and finally, the gospel fruit produces a heavenly hope. We sang about this blessed assurance this morning, which so perfectly fit what we were talking about, because this text tells us that the fruit of faith and love are ultimately rooted in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That there's a secure hope, a confidence unshakable, that we have a hope that's laid up, kept by God himself in heaven for us. And since our faith is in a person, our hope is secure as long as he lives. Since Jesus lives forever, our hope is eternal and unbreakable and unshakable. Peter echoes this when he would write his letter. 1 Peter chapter 1 would say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercies, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, see this, that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see that? By God's power, through Christ's indestructible life, we have a hope that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, and that should produce hope. And it should also give its fruit over to how we love one another, because that means, friends, we're going to be spending a lot of time together. (laughs) And, friends, it means faith, because look at the one who could secure this for us. He could secure it because he's been there. He's walked the road of death and resurrected and, and dwells in heaven today. So the gospel works inside of us. Gospel fruit in God's people but it also works outside of us. Gospel fruit in God's world. In God's world. Let's read from verse 5 to 8 together. Let's look at this. Look what he says. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This we see now is reference to the hope laid up in heaven. He says, you've heard of it before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved 
fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. And I think there's two primary things we see here about how the gospel bears fruit outside of us. First, we should notice that the gospel spreads through ordinary obedience. Through simple Ordinary obedience. The Colossians received the gospel because someone was faithful to share it. In fact, God's word is clear. The gospel only increases when it is verbally proclaimed to others. Let me show you this elsewhere in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes here, he asks a series of questions. And here's what he says. Romans chapter 10, verses 14, 15, and 17. How then will they call upon him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent, as it's written, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel only increases in the world through ordinary obedience to that text. The ordinary obedience to to preaching the gospel to others. I I actually think the best way to read Romans chapter 10 is to read it backward. It's to read it backward. He says that how how will anybody hear if someone's not sent? He says people must be sent. And friends, we've been sent by our king to be his heralds in the world we live in. We've already been given our marching orders. The question is, will we listen to them or will we not listen to them? And he says, others can only hear and then believe and then be saved because someone preaches to them. Let me tell you something, and I hope this just is a a big weight off of your shoulders. People don't come to believe because you have all the answers, because you've loved on them enough. That's always a weird phrase that churches use, right? I've heard people loving on them. I'm like, I don't really want that. That's a weird way to put that. Or because you've, you've known everything about them. So it's not because you have all the answers or because you've loved them perfectly or because you've, you've heard all of their story. Though, again, all of those things are good. There's nothing wrong with loving people while you preach the gospel to them or, or with having an understanding of your faith or with... Or, or, or with hearing people out where they are, but ultimately, friends, none of that in and of itself will ever be enough to save anyone. The gospel must be proclaimed to them. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, and I can tell you there's no little asterisk and little thing down at the bottom of the Bible that says, accept this case. <laughs> the gospel could only bear fruit, even Colossians tells us this. It tells us in Colossians 1 that it could only bear fruit because they heard the gospel, they understood the grace of God and truth, and we're turned and told in verse 7 that they learned it. Friends, who did you learn the gospel from? Maybe it was your parents, maybe a pastor back in the day, maybe a friend, a Sunday school teacher, whoever it was. Who did you first hear it from? Who taught it to you? Because, friends, The gospel must be heard. It's a message, a proclamation to be believed 
understood and, and to change us from the inside out. That Jesus has come in his life, death, burial, and resurrection to reconcile us to a holy God. That we could never, we, we could never do to our sin and our rebellion and our choices to sin against him, make ourselves right with a holy and perfect God. We needed the God-man to come and to bridge the gap by living for us, dying for and, for and taking our penalty and then rising again, showing that the debt was paid in full and anyone can come by repentance and faith and get in on this. Friends, this is good news. It's a gospel. And friends, this gospel bears fruit through ordinary obedience and second, through ordinary people. Through ordinary people. Paul didn't plant this church. That should tell us something. Verse 7 seems to indicate that these people heard the gospel from a guy named Epaphras. And that it was Epaphras who ultimately started this church. And Epaphras wasn't an apostle. I don't see anything in the text that says Epaphras went to Southern Seminary. Friends, Epaphras, all it tells us about him, look at this. He's beloved. Okay, check. All all, all of us are loved by God, right? That, that he's a fellow servant. Okay, I think I can, I can be a servant and just seek to be faithful. Because the, the, the thing is, is many of us think we fail at sharing our faith because the person doesn't come to faith. But that's not true at all. The only time we fail is whenever we fail to do anything at all. Friends, the results are up to God. We just simply seek to be like Epaphras, a beloved, fellow, faithful servant. That's all we seek to be. And in fact, I want you to see this. Chapter 4, verse 12 tells us something about Epaphras that we need to see. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, whether on your Bible, wherever you need to look at this and see this. It says this, it says, Epaphras was one of you. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you? You, Colossians. He's one of you, Crossroads. He's one of you, Cades. He, ain't, he doesn't have some sort of superpower. Many of us think that there's, there's regular Christians and then there's like the super Christians and we have and the, and the super Christians all get together and have some sort of secret handshake and do this sort of secret meeting together. And that's not the case, in case you didn't know. Friends, it's simply people being simply faithful. He was... And in turn, God was able to bear fruit through it, and he was able to look back and see it. The gospel increases in the world through ordinary obedience of ordinary people. And so the question is, as we come from this text, how's the gospel bearing fruit in you? How's it bearing fruit in this church? How's it bearing fruit in Trigg County and in the world? Or would we see our faith more like just a dry, dead bush without any growth. Because, friends, wherever the gospel goes, growth follows. In every case, where the gospel goes, the growth follows. This is why the Bible speaks of a day where simultaneously the whole world's going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the deserts are going to bloom with all, these, with all these colorful flowers. We should begin just the way Paul did. Friends, we should begin, the way to respond to this sermon, one of the ways to just begin to respond, is to respond with thankfulness for any fruit you see. Friends, 
we're rarely thankful for fruit. We always want more results. That's such the culture we live in. We're such results-driven people. If we don't get what we're after right away, we throw the phone across the room, we hit the microwave, whatever it is. We want to see the results right away. And yet God says maybe we just need to be more thankful for the little things that we see. Have you thanked God recently for anyone in this church who's come to faith in Christ in the last year? Have we been thankful for what he's given? Friends, have we been thankful for, for fruit of long, loving Christian marriages among us, even as imperfect as they might be? People who've been together for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years, friends, that's rare and that's something to give thanks for. We've got people around us who can encourage us, even as imperfect as, they, as their marriages might be, that we can look at and go, there's the gospel committing to stay even in difficult seasons. When was the last time we thanked God for real progress, even as slow as it may be in other people around us? Maybe there's just that person that just, there's something about them that just rubs you the wrong way. But you're starting to see more and more of Jesus in them. You're starting to see more and more of life change in them. Friends, have you ever just stopped and thanked God silently? in those moments, that God's at work and somebody else too. Friends, Christian people must be thankful people. And we're often not thankful enough. As we dive deeper into God and to, into His Word in the, weeks of, in the weeks ahead, we must recognize that God is doing something. When we're intentional to read His Word, to gather with the saints, to pray and to pursue Christ, fruit will begin to sprout out of us. That the more we embrace who we are in Christ as saints and sons, new activities will follow. And yet some will hear what I have to say today and remain religious but fruitful, but fruitless. Religious but fruitless. Some would be happy to come to church Pray some prayers, maybe even give some money, but not truly have faith in Christ. Like, I don't want to have to give up that little secret nobody knows about. And yet, friends, that's not faith that will transform you or faith that will transform this world. That's what James would call a dead faith, a fickle, fruitless faith that will never save you or your friend, and you'll never experience the power of God simply by going through the motions but rather through seeking Him in His Word and diving deeper into the ever-supplying ever stream of grace, you'll find when you pursue Jesus again and again and again, and maybe this morning will be your first time to do that, a deep well of water for your faith that will bear much fruit. Friends, I don't want you to walk away from this sermon with a list of to-dos with a sort of attitude of, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to do this all on my own. No, because the gospel is not do, do, do. It's a message of done, done, and done. It's a message of what God has done in Christ. And Jesus said as much in John 15, verse 5. He says this, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot do this alone. Rest in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. And the scripture says you'll bear much fruit. 
in response to this sermon, I would encourage you, if you're somebody who's never committed their life to Jesus or who just wants to take some more steps, take this card that's in your bulletin, rip it off, drop it in the back. Friends, we would love to follow up with you and help you to bear more fruit with Jesus because we know that Christ is all. I'm going to take time to pray, and there's going to be some time just for you to to respond, whether that's praying where you are, whether that's just being thankful to God. And friends, that's part of what worship is. When we come together and sing, we're thankful. And friends, we're going to to spend some time doing that before we we close together. But let's, let's pray together, and let's just pray for God to continue to bear fruit among us. Let's pray. Father God, you're so good to us. You've loved us. You've called us to yourself. You've uh, bore fruit through us in an incredible way. Lord, I I look around this church and I see incredible fruit, incredible evidence of your kindness and grace. And I ask that you would continue to do that. I ask that somebody here today who's never truly known you would by your spirit be convicted of their sin and turn to you in faith, that they'd stick around and talk to me or someone who would love to tell them more about Jesus or that they might even just drop a card in the plate because you've pricked their heart and someone and they would love to be followed up with and talked more with about this. Lord, we're thankful that your word is clear and we're thankful for the book of Colossians and ask that you'd help us to know it and love it and obey it more in the weeks ahead. And Lord, just respond in these next few moments as we uh, reflect on who you are and what you've done and how thankful we are. We ask that you do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.